Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa with Dr. Rory Merritt, and here's what we've got for you today. 25 years ago, on November 30th, 1993, President Bill Clinton signed the infamous Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy into law. This law prohibited lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer individuals from openly serving in the military. LGBTQ individuals and allies have made a lot of progress towards equality, but significant challenges for the community remain, including stark health disparities. Thinking critically about how we as emergency physicians take care of some of our most vulnerable patients is a fundamental yet often underappreciated part of being an excellent emergency physician. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Angela Jarman to discuss her paper, Looking Through the Prism, Comprehensive Care of Sexual Minority and Gender Nonconforming Patients in the Acute Care Setting. Dr. Jarman has recently completed a fellowship in sex and gender and emergency medicine and is an assistant clinical professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. Dr. Jarman, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks so much, Rory. It's great to be here. We appreciate you having me. So for those of us who might be new to the idea of transcending the binary paradigm, can you help break it down for us? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. I do want to give a bit of a shout out to the other authors on this paper, if that's okay. I I feel lucky to be in the company of so many great voices on this topic. Um, We had this, um, I'll start off by just kind of introducing the paper, if that's all right. This paper comes from a didactic that our group put together for SAEM this year, and it was a joint effort between the Academy for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Medicine, as well as the Sex and Gender interest group, both uh, parts of SAEM. And we have leadership from both of those groups on this paper who have have lent um, a great deal of expertise to the topic of caring for LGBTQ patients in the emergency department. Um, I'd like to start a little bit with some vocabulary and definitions, because I think that's uh, an important part of understanding what we're talking about here. We use the term LGBTQI, and that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or intersex. Um, And I'd like to define each of those terms, if that's all right, before we talk about transcending the binary paradigm. Absolutely. Um, First, we'll start with the concept of sex. Mm -hmm. We think of sex as a biological variable, and that refers to someone's uh, chromosomal sex as XX or XY and all of the physiologic um, changes that go along with one's sex. That's in contrast to one's gender or gender identity, which we think of more as someone's uh, perception of themselves as either male or female, as woman or man, feminine or masculine, etc. Um, and and gender sort of filtered through a social context of what defines gender. Okay. Dr. Jarman, I'm hoping you could shed light on the definitions and appropriate terminology for cisgender, transgender, and genderqueer. I think those are really important terms, and I'd be happy to. We've talked about what sex means and what gender means, mm-hmm. uh, and cis and trans are terms that have to do with the relationship of one's sex to their gender. So cisgender means that your sex and your gender match. For example, if you are born as a biologic female, your chromosomes are XX, and you perceive yourself to be female, you feel 
like a woman, then you would be considered cisgender. Transgender, in contrast, is when the sex that you are, your biologic sex, and your gender assignment at birth do not match, uh, and that those persons are considered to be transgender. Gender queer is a, a third term, and that is the Q that we think of in the LGBTQI term, which is a category that is a bit of an umbrella term, but includes individuals that do not feel as if they are either female or male gender. They feel that their gender is a different category and does not ascribe to either of the previously con- considered binary genders. One of the things I really liked about your paper, Dr. Jarman, is your use of patient narratives. So why did you and your co-authors use narratives and how might providers, emergency providers in particular, think of the narratives patient tell us? I love that question. And we were pretty thoughtful about the use of narratives here. I think we're all scientists and we're used to data and we're used to numbers. And there's a fair bit of data out there about this population, but we wanted to try to get at it from a different angle. Um, and and reading the narratives, even today when I reread them, I, I am struck with emotion and, and I feel so much empathy for the patients. And I think that's really what we were going for. Um, it's so hard sometimes when you work as many clinical hours as a lot of us do to think about all of the gray area between the numbers and the data with our patients. But this is a population that really requires that we do that. So I think we are asking people to consider these patients as persons and humans and consider their social and cultural uh, context, not just their chief complaints, because we really believe that doing that will allow us to take better, more comprehensive and better personalized care of patients. We also know that this population of patients that identify as LGBTQI are our vulnerable population and have a lot of health disparities. And so our use of narratives in this case was also an attempt to humanize these patients and help provide a bridge between the provider and the patient. We wanted to use the narratives to help providers connect with patients and counteract this idea of LGBTQI patients as other and as patients that we can't understand. Um, And we felt that using their personal stories, complete with the emotions that they felt that went along with them, would go a long way in building a bridge between patients that are vulnerable and at risk and providers that may have very limited experience in caring for these patients. I think you and your team really succeeded. I was struck by the story of a patient who is a trans woman trying to seek emergency medical care. And among other important issues like trauma, their experience highlighted the importance of language, the importance of identity. So what are some practical steps that providers can take to meet patients where they're at with respect to their identities? Yes, we did use that story, which is a story about a trans woman being called by her birth name, which was not a gender neutral name and how difficult it was for her to overcome that to continue seeking care in the emergency department. And we use that example to point out the importance of language here. Um, That's one of the reasons that we spend so much time defining these terms, because we believe in the emergency department, when you have a very limited amount of time with your patient, 
we all know that one of our greatest skills and greatest challenges is building rapport and trust with our patients in that limited amount of time. And having the correct vocabulary is, is an important part of building trust with our LGBTQI patients. We really encourage providers to be open and simply ask patients when they're not sure what terms to use, what pronouns to use. Uh, in general, this patient population really appreciates our efforts uh, to use appropriate terminology with them. Even if you make a mistake, it's okay to apologize and keep going. So this is one example where semantics really do matter. Um, in terms of practical applications. Um, this is a, another place where I think as the physicians, we have to take leadership on the team. So there are, are a couple places with the EMR where we can make this easier because a lot of patients don't change their names legally even when they transition. Epic, for example, in the newest upgrade actually has um, a way in the toolbar to put in a person's chosen pronouns so that all providers know which pronouns to use. Another thing I have done, and you could do this with Citrix or another EMR, is put in the comments section what the patient's name is or what name we should be using. Because I think we are probably re-traumatizing patients when they go through eight different steps from the triage nurse to the technician to the resident to the attending, and each person calls them their, quote, dead name, um, which was a term that was used in our narrative by a patient. I would also add that I think some of our staff receive less training in this than we do as, as the physicians, and I think it's really important to emphasize that with staff, particularly when we, we have trans patients whose anatomy uh, is fits with their sex from birth, but that's different than their gender identity. It's very confusing, I think, to some of our staff, and it's a place where we can really go the extra mile to be leaders on the team by emphasizing with staff what the correct terms are uh, and, and essentially setting the expectation that those are the terms that will be used consistently, not just in front of the patient, but when we're in our, quote, doc box or inner sanctum, wherever we work and are discussing a patient, because I think that helps reiterate what the appropriate terms are. That's an excellent transition. You know, one of the quotes that I liked in your paper was know the medicine, know your patient, know yourself. Why is the last piece, know yourself, so important, especially in providing care for, for patients who may be LGBTQI? Well, I think it's really important that we all take inventory of our own bias. And, you know, we do work on the front lines in a way that a lot of medical specialties don't. Um, we make jokes, you know, about how we have the best stories at dinner parties, but the truth is we see so much more uh, of humanity and society than most of our friends do. True. And I think the onus is on us to be non-judgmental caring providers for all of our patients. I do not think this is... Um, novel or applies only to LGBTQI patients, but we know every day that we see patients who are homeless, who suffer from addiction, who are obese, uh, who are sex and gender minorities, and it's really part of our Hippocratic Oath that we take good care of them. Um, the reason we think that bias is so important here is because if you feel uncomfortable, then you tend to shy away from asking those important questions. Um, and 
time and time again, we hear these stories from trans patients who've had negative experiences in the emergency department. And and oftentimes that's because the appropriate information was not gathered from them. And I think a lot of that has to do with providers feeling uncomfortable. If you feel uncomfortable, your patients know that, and they're not going to be as open with you and provide the information that may be key to taking good care of them. Um, but, you know, I think you and I both work with med students and what the quote that really used to frustrate me in medical school was that, you know, 80% of the diagnosis comes from the history and physical. But, you know, however many years into practice I am at this point, I think 90% of it comes from the history and physical, you know, and the difference between being uh, good and being excellent it comes from this communication piece, comes from establishing rapport with your patient, from gaining their trust, and from creating a safe space for them to give you the answer. Because they're trying to give you the answer. You just have to ask the right question. Um, and this is a place where, where we think that's incredibly important. There are a lot of emerging sex differences in presentations of disease, for example, in acute care cardiology. So understanding that you are dealing with a trans man may be really important to their care, even if their care is something like chest pain or their chief complaint is chest pain. So ultimately, we're asking providers to consider their bias because we think it impacts uh, patient care and that we have an obligation to provide the best possible care to this population that we know is vulnerable, just as we have an obligation to provide that same care to all the patients that we see. Well, I think you make some really important points. You know, we really can't know if we don't ask. And we right. we really can't ask unless we have good rapport with our patients. So I take your lessons to heart that we really should try very hard to take care of this population who is often, um, unfortunately, still so vulnerable with so many health inequities. So I really appreciate your national leadership on these issues. And thank you so much for your time. You're very kind. Thank you so much for for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, as a representative of our team. Your team would be very proud. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rory. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training Podcast. Make sure to hit the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to this series on iTunes. Look for us at AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa. Thanks again to Dr. Rory Merritt, and we'll see you next time.